Hey Jigsateers, thanks again for stopping by. If you're new to the channel, my name is Riley and I'm a former Jehovah's Witness. And today I will be joined by Christy Lanterman. Christy is a licensed professional um, counsellor <laughs> based in Kansas in the United States. She sees couples and adult individuals recovering from religious trauma. Christy focused her graduate studies on learning how religious trauma occurs, its common symptoms, and how to identify controlling groups and people. And she also helps people to recover from it. And with that, I introduce Christy. Hi, Hi. Christy, how are you doing? Good, thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining me. So um, I'm not sure if you're aware, but um, tomorrow, no, sorry, not tomorrow, Monday, from Monday um, throughout the whole of next week will be Mental Health Week in the UK. So um, I really wanted to uh, do a couple of uh, special um, uh, events surrounding the subject of mental health. And one really important aspect of that is religious trauma as a former Jehovah's Witness. Mm. Uh, it's something that I've suffered with myself and it's something that a lot of um, ex-Jehovah's Witnesses um, have struggles with. So I'm really grateful that you're, you agreed to join me today. Yeah, it's a pleasure being here. Thank you for having me. Thank you. So um, what I'd like to do is just if you tell us a little bit about your background, um, going to um, religious trauma, what it is, how it occurs, its symptoms, so on and so forth. And then uh, later on, we can take some questions. Great. Yeah. yeah, so a little bit more about my background, apart from the bio that you uh, introduced me with, is that I do come from a religious trauma background. Mine happens to be more the evangelical fundamental Christian church in rich with purity culture concepts. And so that's my interest going into grad school was from that personal experience where I looked at some of those themes coming up. And of course, specializing it, I've seen like a vast majority of different expressions of that through different dogmatic religious cults and structures. So um, although some of the tactics and some of the um, ideologies are different. A lot of times the effects can be very similar in terms of religious trauma slash religious abuse happens when people misuse faith-based power to use sometimes, oftentimes fear-based tactics to tell people how they should think, feel, behave, and act essentially. Mm -hmm. So really just telling them how they should live, whether or not that is healthy human behavior or not, based upon uh, what this religious structure is saying, how they should live. And it suppresses people's identities. It suppresses their core values. It, it suppresses their sexual identities from growing. It suppresses a lot of who they are. And then of course, with the fear-based tactics being you know, an eternal fiery death in hell, the, the risks are quite high in terms of why we should listen, behave and act and feel these certain ways that these people in power are telling us to. So it, that can cause freeze and terror in the body uh, for long-term effects, you know, especially oh, with- We the lost Christy, actually. I'm sorry, I think um, the internet connection blipped for just a second. Okay. Okay, um, please continue. Okay. Uh, yeah, so with these fear-based tactics, with these high-stakes uh, risks involving, you know, long-term 
eternal fiery death, if you will, um, it, that, that creates freeze in the body and tear in the body and can have like long-term sort of PTSD trauma effects in the body if not addressed and not integrated and not allowed to heal from. So trauma on a fundamental level is when something awful happens to us and we don't have the autonomy or the resources to influence it and recover from it. And so when you add religion to that, where with regular trauma, we don't feel safe in our body, emotions, or psyche in this world, well, with religion, we don't feel safe in any of those domains, you know, in a forever way, which causes a lot of terror. And then especially from the Jehovah's Witness um, perspective, where you have this idea of Armageddon, like that could happen at any moment, at any mm -hmm. moment. <laughs> this horrible thing can happen. And so you just are living in a lot of terror and a lot of fear. And that over time has a lot of impact on our physiological states and our mental states. And it really can disconnect our mind from our body um, in terms of we don't feel safely embodied. And so we kind of disconnect from important things like emotions, physiological responses, internal coping skills that help us through day to day that we are out of touch in those things. So all of these things can happen in religious trauma, through religious abuse. And then specifically religious trauma syndrome is kind of more specific to when one leaves that structure, that dogmatic structure, and then the shock mm -hmm. <laughs> that experience mm -hmm. leaving. So you you are under traumatic experiences and abuse in the structure. And then when you build up the courage or have the insight or have the ability to kind of separate yourself from that, maybe deconstruct some of the harmful beliefs that were forced upon you, that were, you know, abused upon you, that in itself leaving can have major impacts on us because we are social beings, we're community beings, we need to feel safe, seen and soothed. And when we re remove ourselves from that community, we feel sort of like babies in the world. We feel like yeah. <clears throat> we don't know anything. You know, we've been told how to think, so we don't know how to think for ourselves. We've been told what to believe, so we don't know what to believe for ourselves. We've been told how to live. And so then when we when we do have the courage to find out, OK, this doesn't feel like the kind of lifestyle or community I want to be in or the, the theologies I want to subscribe to, you have the ability to move past it. Well, then, you know, the trauma is not over because that's a shock in and of itself, leaving that community because you just feel so disorientated. You have to discover <clears throat> kind of how to live in a world that you were told was evil and sinful and unsafe. Yeah, kind of out in it trying to figure that out and yeah. um, and your body sort of the way um, we say it in kind of the triumph trauma mindset, the trauma informed mindset is the body keeps the score. So even if I've deconstructed in my mind, OK, <clears throat> what I was subjected to in this religious community was um, was abuse. Maybe cognitively, I realized that was not OK. Well, I leave it, well, the body keeps the score. Mm -hmm. And the body doesn't always feel safe until that trauma has been integrated and worked through. Yeah. That that really resonates with me, what you just said. I mean, this is gonna sound really, really crazy, but 
a few months after I left the, the Jehovah's Witness organization, I, I actually had a dream that two Jehovah's Witnesses knocked on my door and I was speaking with them at the door and I told them that I was no longer a witness, but that I had a lot of anger and resentment and all these negative feelings building up on me. And I could feel that it was shortening my lifespan. Mm. I actually had this dream and I told them this in my dream. And I feel, I really feel that that was like my subconscious telling me that I had to try and find a way to overcome all of these yeah. negative emotions that I had attached to, you know, being a, a witness and leaving that world. <laughs> or it was literally damaging my health. Mm -hmm. And you are literally correct. I mean, everything about that dream is literally correct because, um, you know, that it's it's this hypervigilance when you're in that trauma, when you're concerned about that Armageddon, when you're when you're worried for your eternal well-being and you've got these fear based. You just your body feels like at any moment there's going to be a lion I need to run from, you know, a snake I need to attack or I need to freeze. <laughs> And I'm dead. So you're in that fight, flight, or freeze mode, hyperactively, chronically. Yeah. And so that's not healthy for our bodies. We need to be into our parasympathetic system, not in our sympathetic system all the time. And religious trauma has that ability to keep us at that high level of stress, of hypervigilance, of cortisol, of hyperactivity. And that suppresses our immune system. Mm. And that opens us up to chronic illnesses and diseases we may not have brought on otherwise. Yeah, yeah. So your dream is very accurate. Yeah, I mean, it's something I'm, that I didn't realize. My, I mean, what you said about hypervigilance is so true. I mean, I didn't realize that about myself until my uh, girlfriend made me aware of it. She said, you're always like, you, you, you have trouble being present. You're always looking around any little thing that happens. You're like all, all the time, always looking over your shoulder, never being able to relax. And I have even up till today, I, I have trouble just not doing anything. I have trouble doing nothing. I always have to be doing something. I always have to be occupied with something. Yeah. And it's something I've heard uh, um, many other witnesses say as well, mm -hmm. ex-witnesses rather. Yeah. And that's that fear-based tactic. That's that religious mm -hmm. abuse saying you aren't safe. Unless you're actively you yeah. know, doing God's will, actively um, living your life as you should in this square, in this prescribed way of being. Because at any moment, you know, Armageddon or, you know, the second coming or whatever it is they're saying, whatever fear-based tactic they're using, at any moment, you could be essentially effed. You know? mm -hmm. yeah. So you've got that hypervigilance. And we see this and we can conceptualize it in paramedics and firefighters because they're in crisis modes all the time. I don't know if you've ever gone to lunch with a, a, a paramedic or especially a firefighter or a police officer. If you go to lunch, they want to sit in a position where they can see the exit and they can see the whole room. I, I do that. <laughs> I do that. Because they're constantly in crisis mode. They're constantly, when's the next fire? When's the next burglary? When's the next emergency? Well, religious trauma does that to us. When is the next crisis? Mm -hmm. When am I not going to be safe? Because I'm already unsafe living in this sinful body, in this sinful nature. 
And so I constantly have to be striving to be in God's will in his favor, because at any moment this could happen. And that it's, you know, it's fear-based tactics to keep, keep people behaving the way that these, this leadership wants them to behave. Mm. And so that's what you're doing. You're trying to, you're trying to scope your environment to make sure you're safe. Yeah. Um, just out of interest, um, do a lot of other like very strict religions and high control groups and cults have this same fear of impending calamity? Um, you know, or is that something that's unique to Jehovah's Witnesses? So in the uh, conservative fundamental Christian church, we have sort of this um, second coming. Uh, end times, uh, revelation story, you know, fire and brimstone. And um, yeah, so there's, <laughs> yeah, so we have it in that too. I, I do think that there's something really unique and I can't put my finger on it. It's just a felt sense with the Jehovah's Witnesses I've worked with that it feels uh, to me in a felt sense, even a tad bit more terrifying. And I, I'm not sure, I haven't figured out why that is for Jehovah's Witnesses specifically. But I, I do know that in the conservative Christian church, this second coming or this um, end times, you know, they've even made movies about it and they, they, you know, they have revelation studies about it. Like people, even years, five, 10 years after they have left the church will wake up in the middle of the night, afraid of the second coming, yeah. afraid of being in hell. And they're like, I don't even, believe this stuff anymore and i still am afraid of it happening yeah so. I, I, i've i've been through that myself mm -hmm. i mean um before I, I woke up and realized that jehovah's witnesses were not the one true religion if there even is such a thing which i highly doubt um it was during the well, like when the pandemic first hit and I had nightmares every single night. I was 100% convinced that this was the lead up to Armageddon. Mm. And um, even though I don't believe that anymore, every now and again now, especially if like, there's a thunderstorm, especially at night, you know, I will often wake up in the middle of the night if, if there's a thunder or like, or even if it's just raining heavily and it's quite loud, mm. <laughs> I'll wake up in a little, little bit of a panic. Yeah, absolutely. Your body's, you know, it's sort of your amygdala is what it is because you're all your sensory, what you see, what you hear, what you're taking in comes to the amygdala first and is actually um, translated through this. The amygdala is in that reptilian brain. It's sensing for danger constantly. And it actually processes things faster than we're able to through our, you know, occipital you know, through our eyesight and understand what's happening. And so you can feel a jolt in your body before you can understand, oh, it's just a thunderstorm or a jolt mm -hmm. in your body when you make sense of like, okay, no, if I just wear a mask and get on the vaccination, then I should be safe because your body's like, this is it. This is what you've been told to look out for, you know? And so your body's reacting to that. Mm -hmm. So so, you know, just the top down approach and trauma recovery doesn't always it's not enough. Like the top down meaning, I know I don't believe this stuff anymore, so I'm safe. I'm OK. That's only a piece of it. We also need to do a bottom up approach where we become safely embodied to integrate that trauma, too. Mm -hmm. um, it can't just it needs to be both ways. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. So in, in your experience, what, what are some of the like worst effects of re religious trauma syndrome on, on, on people that you've, you've worked with? Yeah, I think the, you know, no PTSD is a horrible thing. You don't want it. You know, what is PTSD? It's hypervigilance. It's, um, it's a, it's your system just always on call. It's, constant cortisol, constant um, strain and stress in the body. Um, it's irritability. It's avoidance of certain stimuli. It's um, numbness, anodynia, lack of joy of life, lack of meaning in life. It's irritable moods. It's emotional dysregulation. I mean, you do not want PTSD. You just mm. don't. And I feel like religious trauma PTSD is you know, it's pretty bad. So that's usually the most um, urgent thing to address if somebody has PTSD symptoms like that. Um, then the other things we see is because religion is often telling us um, how to live sexually our lives, like what's okay and what's not okay, a lot of times people's sexual identity freezes. And that can be for, you know, heteros too, but certainly for the queer community, the LGBTQ community, your, your sexual identity will likely freeze because you've been told that same sex attraction is sinful. And so you shut down your sexuality, you shut down your desire for sex, you shut down these parts of yourself that really bring us vitality and life and meaning and joy and love. And, you know, and so that's shut down. And, and what I find is when people's sexuality is suppressed, one of two things happen, your erotic being either splits off and dies, and that's where you don't have a sense of vitality or connectiveness or sexuality or pleasure. And that just dies. That's that's the anodynia, or it splits off and inflames, and it inflames in a way that's not always healthy. It's not always. It becomes risky behavior. It becomes unprotected. It becomes, um, you know, to a point where it's interfering with your job and and your relationships and that kind of stuff. And so, religious trauma can also cause people's sexuality to go all, you know, wonky and unhealthy because we weren't necessarily allowed to just own our bodies, own our pleasure in a way that's consensual to us and consensual to other people in a way that um, brings us life and meaning because we were told and sub subscribed or told to subscribe to a certain heteronormative, um, you know, nuclear family expression. Um, and so clearly, on the queer community, it's a big hit, but also we find this in even heterosexuals, it's a big hit. And I'm not really sure 100% about this in the Jehovah's Witness, so I would love to hear your feedback. But what we see in the conservative Christian church is something called complementarianism. Complementarianism is so long as the head of the household is the man and the wife or the woman is the servant, everything is fine in the marriage and everything is going to go as planned. And so long as men are in charge um, of the church and women are serving that, everything's fine in the church. So when we have issues in marriages or in relationships, it's because somebody's not fulfilling their role. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's exactly like that in Jehovah's Witnesses to a, to a T. Yeah. 
But guess yeah. what? Some women are ambitious and innovative and genius, you know, and like are outspoken. And some men are okay with like, yeah, take the spotlight. That's fun. They they don't necessarily want to call the shots. They like to be, you know, take it. You know, they like a, a an aggressive woman. But but we are told that that's not okay. Mm. It would be like this. And so even clearly the queer community gets hit so hard. But even heterosexuals, they get hit, hit hard too. And their sense of, you know, uh, for women, you know, like, is it, is it bad that like I, I want to lead the group? Is it bad that I, I don't want to be a stay-at-home mom? Is it bad that like I want to own my pleasure and I want to masturbate and I want to, you know, are these things bad? And and it stunts people's identity development and their and owning their pleasure and owning their they're who they are. Mm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, something that I struggled with massively in, in the um, organization was that I felt my individuality was being suppressed. I felt that I was being forced to conform to a personality type that just, or a mold that just didn't sit well with me. And I really, really fought against it, but not, not even consciously. Subconsciously, I, I really resisted that. And it caused me so much pain. I mean, I'm not exaggerating to say pain. It, it caused me pain mm -hmm. because I, I, I wanted to do, I wanted, I'm naturally a people pleaser. Mm -hmm. I wanted to do what was expected of me. I wanted to, you know, make the people around me proud and, and, and be looked upon as a good example. But at the same time, I couldn't do that without conforming. And mm -hmm. my inner self just did not want to do that. Yeah. 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 It's so sad. And then we sort of, because we want to conform, because we want to be accepted, because we want don't want to rock the boat, and we we don't and and the risks are so high. By the yeah, way. you know the the consequences are so terminal and permanent and forever. So we gotta not only do we want to be that people pleaser and we want to fulfill our role and and be accepted, but we also know that the risks are quite high. Yeah. So we do that and then we accidentally perpetuate the trauma by doing that, right, um, with other people. And by continuing that complementarianism or propagating that message or, you know, and just because we were wanting to do the right thing, because we were wanting to live in the right way, because we wanted to live out of love. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um Thank you. I think it will be a, a great time to take some questions now. If that's okay. Yeah. Okay. So let me just have a look. Okay. Right. So Anita, hi Anita, how are you doing? So Anita's question is, Christy, do your family still speak to you? Yeah. So you mentioned that you come from an evangelical background yourself as well. I mean, coming out of that, have, have you experienced any kind of uh, strained relationships? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and before I answer that, I just want to say how important this question is and how often it comes up in these topics because it does disrupt family relationships when you leave dogmatic religion. It it there's this sort of we versus them, black and white thinking. And so when you step out of the community and your family is still in it, 
what does that mean for that relationship? And, and when I work with religious trauma survivors, a huge chunk of the work is about those family dynamics and sort of that oftentimes grief process of letting go what you hoped could have been of that relationship and, and kind mm -hmm. of acceptance of what it is on, on whatever level. Because some, some families disown you. Many families disown you. And biologically, we are wired for family ties because in our DNA, it was in our survival to be close to family and to have those family ties. If we weren't accepted in that community and our family, you know, we would last a couple days out in the jungle or in the safari and we would be dead. And so, of course, that's a huge, you know, question in religious trauma is like, do you still speak to your family? And um, I do, I do still speak to my family. And what I have decided, although I'm very vocal online and I'm very vocal on my, you know, my profile and that kind of stuff, I have decided to not come out to them as a non-believer at this time, because I don't want them to go into prayer and fasting for my soul. Mm -hmm. Now, if they come to me and specifically ask me, you know, what are your thoughts? Have you changed about your faith? You know, I, of course, will tell them, but I have decided that I'm not going to go to them and talk to them about my change in faith because I don't want them to be afraid of my eternal well-being. And I don't want to put that distress on them, knowing that what they're thinking about me not being a believer in that black and white we versus them mentality. So. I'm not quiet about my I, my thoughts on religious trauma, but I have come to accept that the relationship I have with my family is a very superficial one that, you know, they oftentimes will really talk about everything in light of um, sort of, you know, the Christian faith. And so, and that's great, but about me, it's going to be pretty superficial about the, you know, the weather, about the kids, about activities, about job changes and that sort of thing. And so I have come to the place where I'm okay with, or I've had to be okay with mm. this superficial uh, relationship with them. Yeah. Yeah. I understand. Thank you very much for answering that, that personal question. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, we have a question from um, M Burridge who asks, um, <clears throat> Do you have a list or a, a list available or a source of specialist religious trauma counselors available? Yes. I love this question because the Secular Therapy Project has done the work for you. They have gone through a thorough screening of counselors all over the globe who legitimize the term religious trauma and use evidence-based practices only. So they're not going to kind of be, you know, loosey-goosey with the work. They're going to only use those evidence-based treatment modalities and trauma-informed treatment modalities that will help integrate the trauma. And they have already done the work for you. So seculartherapyproject.org. I think it was in the the resources that I, the bio and information yep. that you um, so would love to have that tagged to this video. Um, they also have a site called Recovering from Religion. Yeah, so yeah, here it is. Great. Yeah. Seculartherapyproject.org. 
and also a part of that is recovering from religion and they have an ex an amazing amount of resources for each different type of cult so they will have a section um you know that's curated for jehovah's witness and and different um cult-like controlling groups and they've done all the work for you to where you can go there you can find a list of resources um you can at the secular therapy project you can find a therapist that they've already screened for you uh, because not all mental health professionals legitimize the term religious mm -hmm. and so it's really important that you find one that does and that knows that religion can harm yeah absolutely and cause ptsd because not all therapists know that mm -hmm. there is some research to suggest that there are positive correlative positive mental health outcomes with religious affiliation so a lot of therapists know about that research and they think yeah Religion's a great place to have community and coping resources and and you know a sense of belonging, but these mental health professionals don't know about the um, religious abuse that happens and the extremes that religion can go to to control and harm folks. And so you need to find a therapist that knows about the other side of religion, the dark side of religion, and you can find that at the seculartherapyproject.org. And also on Recovering from Religion's website, you can. Um, there's a web chat, 24-7 web chat and phone call. You can talk to a volunteer at any time if you're having sort of a, a distressing moment or a difficult time and you just need to talk to somebody that understands what you're going through. There's volunteers all over the globe that manage those, that text line and that chat line that you can call in and find somebody that understands what you're going through because it it's... It delays the process of recovery um, when you don't have people to go to and talk to. When you can find a group of people to talk to, which is also an offering on Recovering from Religion. I volunteer with Recovering from Religion and they have groups all over the globe that meet virtually, of course, because the pandemic, we used to meet in person, but you, yeah. can, you can join virtually now. It's a great opportunity to join any group with whatever time zone that works for you to talk to other survivors and sharing stories and hearing that you're not alone and you're not the only one that wakes up in night terrors or doesn't feel safe in your body or is having a painful experience. That is so validating. That is mm -hmm. so helpful for recovery and recovering from religion has it for you and it's all volunteer run. So it doesn't cost any money. Um, it's a wonderful resource. That's great. Thank you. And um, yeah, viewers, all of those uh, links will be in the description of the video. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, you touched on a really important point about therapy. I mean, I've always, well, since I've started my activism, I've always encouraged uh, anyone leaving the organization, you know, leaving Jehovah's Witnesses or any kind of high control religion to, to seek therapy. But it's, I think it's very, very important, extremely important to get therapy that specifically targets um, leaving a high control religion. I mean, I was um, speaking to someone just earlier today who has had therapy for years after um, exiting the witnesses, but it was never focused on that experience. It was always just generally for depression or for other, you know, life difficulties, but it never really got to the, the, the root cause of the issue, which was all of this trauma that's associated with being involved in a religion like this. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Yeah, it's such an important piece. And and therapists that don't understand the power differential that happens in religious trauma can accidentally trigger it in the power differential in the therapist and client dynamic. Mm. Wonderful. That's really interesting. And so, you know, a colleague and I who, who studied religious trauma in grad school, we did a CEU for local therapists talking about those um, trigger spots and and potential areas to accidentally trigger the trauma in session and perpetuate it accidentally. And so you have to find a therapist that understands that high control dynamic that uses practices that even that relationship. So it's not, you need to think differently. A lot of accidentally the approach cognitive behavior therapy, at least the first wave was all about changing your thoughts. Well, guess what that sounds like? Yeah. 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 You're absolutely right. That's really right? interesting. Yeah. And so the second wave of CBT is more that acceptance and commitment. I accept that I'm thinking this way. I don't necessarily want to think this way, but I'm thinking this way and I want to think differently. Mm. So, but therapists that don't understand that pat, that high control power differential and saying, Oh, you need to think differently. What's going to happen in your body. It's going to feel like the same thing. Absolutely. That's a really interesting point. Mm -hmm. So M. Burridge has a, another question. Uh, well, not quite a question. Uh, I've spoken to Riley in the past about how JWs suffer from depression and fibromyalgia. Yeah. So that, that's really interesting. That's something that I've come across, you know, personally quite a lot. There are a large amount of witnesses, particularly women, who suffer from fibromyalgia. I mean, have you, in, in your experience, um, encountered any particular illnesses that seem to be um, endemic within a particular high control group for any reason? Mm. You know, I haven't um, seen a theme. I mean, certainly health concerns kind of run the gamut, comorbidities happen that are de definitely somatic, uh, somatically based. Mm. So that, that is interesting. I I would love to see somebody put some research behind that and look at it more closely. But it doesn't surprise me because it, we just cannot. Our body is not made to be in that reptilian fight, flight or freeze constantly. That's not mm. how our body was made. We we are supposed to get into it in cases of crisis so we can keep ourselves safe and then become safely embodied and rest. Well, if we never come to that rest, our body can't regenerate and replenish and take care of itself. So it, it's no surprise to me that you guys are, you know, seeing this connection um, in your communities at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really interesting. Actually, I was watching a, a video. I mean, it had nothing to do with this. It was it was more to do with health and fitness. Mm -hmm. um, but it was saying that when your body is in a fight or flight response, constantly and you have this buildup of cortisol in your body it can actually change your body type there's a there's a specific body type that's typical for people who have a high amount of cortisol um, due to this trauma and fight or flight response being in that state constantly it can change your dna expression wow mm -hmm. yeah. wow mm -hmm. that's that's really scary when you think about it but you know, there is hope. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure people know there is hope. Um, 
obviously therapy is really helpful and any practice that, that helps you feel safely embodied is, you know, we need the top down approach, but we also need the bottom up approach. So yoga, mindfulness, meditation, um, journaling, walks, like anything that makes you feel safely embodied that creates mind body connection mm. and to help calm that state of panic in your body. Um, I, I personally really, really love uh, something called EFT, emotional freedom technique. It's a tapping technique that can uh, that. re-change that DNA expression and lower the stress response too. And that's highly effective as well, the, the wow. tapping or EFT approach in, in terms of becoming safely embodied again. That's really interesting. Thank you. Um, so Patrick um, makes the point that you never realize how much you had to put yourself down and so put yourself and your comforts down in order to do more and more for the organization. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not sure if, I don't know if this is, is true of mm -hmm. other high control religions, but Jehovah's Witnesses, it's an extremely demanding and time-consuming religion. Your time is not your own when you're a Jehovah's Witness. I, you know, it's, it, Jehovah's Witnesses are amongst some of the busiest people on earth. Mm -hmm. And um, you're always constantly pushed towards doing more. Are you doing more? Is there more you could be doing? And that puts an enormous strain on, on you, especially, you know, if, I mean, you're, you're working as well. You could have a family you know and all of that it, i mean i particularly found that extremely difficult to keep up with the the general demands of the religion is this something that you've seen in other groups yes <laughs> there's this saying you must decrease so he must increase <laughs> I mean, wow. so basically you got to disappear Mm. You, your wants, your desires, your values, your needs, they need to go away and you need to do, 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 right? And there was sort of this unspoken rule, at least in the, the dynamic I grew up in. It's like, it's God, you know, and then it's the ministry. And then maybe it's family if we have time. Mm. Right? So it's like you we had something similar in the witnesses. They were saying if, if you're unhappy, it's because you don't know how to spell joy. So J-O-Y stands for Jehovah first, others second, and yourself last. Oh. And if, if you're unhappy, it's because you've got that in the wrong order. And what we find in mental health is that it's like the exact opposite. Mm. You know, there's something called a healthy mind platter that Dr. Dan Siegel put out that talks about you know, similar to the healthy food platter we see of the different types of nutrition we need to get in each meal, vegetables, fruits, carbs, yeah. proteins. Well, there's a healthy mind platter for us to have to be um, fully our best mind, our best embodied person where we're our most productive. And guess what we need a balance of? Downtime, six to eight hours of sleep, recreation, mm -hmm. play, connecting time, and focus mm. so basically the focus is that work like that um you know engaging doing working um pleasing being there for other people but that's just one piece of a healthy mind we have to have all these other things to have a healthy mind so it's actually a mental health it's the opposite that we find mm -hmm. it's yeah. true 
And you, the analogy that works great is that in an airplane, when they tell you in the um, safety precautions, they tell you, you have to put oxygen on yourself first before you do it on your child or an elderly. Well, that yeah. sounds so counterintuitive coming from a high, de high demand religion. That sounds like the opposite of what we were told to do. But guess what? If we don't put that oxygen mask on ourselves first, nobody's going to be saving that that four-year-old. Yeah. Nobody's going to be saving that grandma that can't reach over her arm because her shoulders are, you know, you have to give yourself what you need to be the best you for other people. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's like something that a really good friend of mine is always saying that self-care isn't selfish. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's, it's absolutely true. I mean, like you said, in, in, in the Jehovah's Witnesses, it's the complete other way around. You're, you're taught that any kind of consideration for yourself is inherently selfish. Yeah. Absolutely anything to the point where, I mean, like I celebrated my second birthday uh, last month and it was absolutely wonderful. I mean, I love celebrating my birthday. I'm, I'm definitely going to be doing it for the, for the rest of my life. But there were times throughout the day where I actually felt guilty for all of the attention I was getting. Wow. Yeah. You know, I actually felt like I, I don't deserve this, this amount of um, consideration. And yeah. just I'm not used to being made a, a fuss of you know, to, to this degree. Yeah. And that's one of the effects that the religion has. I mean, you're, as a Jehovah's Witness, your yourself is so small. Yeah. You know, your, your inner self is really, really tiny and everything else just dwarfs it. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a often one of the first goal, of, apart from becoming safely embodied, one of the primary goals I find pretty much in all my religious trauma clients is self-compassion. Mm. and self-love not self-esteem not self-worth because the self-esteem self-worth model is that comparative model and we're really good at comparing ourselves to other people i don't want you to do that and i don't want us to do any more of that comparing but the self-compassion the self-love um because you know if we were to talk to our best friends the way that we talk to ourselves inside we would have no best friends but we have to live with that voice 24 seven. So no wonder we're exhausted. No wonder we're in pain. No wonder we're depressed. No wonder our cortisol's up because we are, we have been taught to perpetuate the criticism and the self doubt and the self loathing and the worthlessness inside in our self critic. And so one of the primary things I hit in therapy is self-compassion and a great resource for self-compassion is Kristen Neff's work. Um, and EFF, she has a TED talk on self-compassion. It's brilliant and a book on it. And it's very, very healing to, to allow yourself to switch to the mindset of I'm just as worthy as anyone else mm. to be celebrated on my birthday. I'm just as worthy as anyone else to have self-care and to become safely embodied and to be compassionate to myself when I make mistakes. Mm. Well. That's really that's really powerful. Um, we have another comment from the Shund experience. Uh, the hardest thing to undo was the thought that I was going to live forever to realizing I will die one day and live 80 years if I'm lucky. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. This is a really interesting point. Would you like to speak to that a little? Oh, yeah. I mean, 
I'll speak to that on a personal level. I mean, I literally remember when I felt all the deconstruction blocks come down and I realized that too, that I wasn't going to live forever. And just the grief and the sadness mm. and the existential dread of how short my life was and not only how short my life was, but how many years I wasted in, in religion, hating myself. Yeah. You know, like, now I'm finally like loving myself and enjoying sex and enjoying pleasure and like living my life to the fullest. And I have like this much time, like that is just it. There's so much grief in that. And there's so much sadness and there's so much terror in that realization. And I remember the moment where that kind of came ahead to me in the bathtub, just bawling, you know, it's heavy, it's so heavy. It is, it is. I mean, that's something that I'm still struggling to come to terms with, especially as I get older and I can see signs of advancing age, like the, the volume on the TV has to be a little bit louder. <laughs> and I wear glasses now, which is something that like five years ago, I never, ever imagined I'd have to do, you know, things like the, the, these small signs of like advancing age and like, you know, my own mortality. Yeah. Um, I, I still haven't come to terms with that yet. It's something that I'm still struggling with personally. And then what is wonderful on the flip side and coming to terms with that is really living your best life. Mm -hmm. Waiting for, you know, the pearly gates or waiting for that eternal reward, you know, but but living for now and living your best life as you define that, as your values define that and committing to your own values and making that meaning for yourself can be the most freeing, life-giving, um, ecstatic vi vitality. You know, there any word of just life that you can imagine put in there when you are able to allow yourself to define your own meaning, your own values and live your life in that way, now that's amazing. And that mm. that's what existential dread gets us, right? Is like I only have so many years. So what am I going to do about it? Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good way of looking at it, turning that negative into a positive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Right, we have a comment from my good friend John Maple. He says that he was told by several people that any marriage can work if they put Jehovah first, whether <laughs> the two people are compatible or not. This is one of my biggest bones of contention with the organization because i was told this also i was told that um the idea of wanting to be compatible with your partner is a worldly idea and that's worldly thinking and that i wasn't thinking like a spiritual person because i had this concept of mm -hmm. compatibility mm -hmm. um, and this particular elder told me that any two people can get married and as long as they follow bible principles they will have a happy marriage yeah. So yeah. there was a, an elderly woman in my congregation at the time. She was like in her late 80s, early 90s. Um, she was really sweet, a little old, you know, East German woman. <laughs> so I said to this elder, OK, so in theory, I could marry her. <laughs> right. I was like, <laughs> I was like uh, 21 or 22. I said, in theory, I could marry her. And as long as we both practice Bible principles, we'd have a happy marriage. And he said to me, yes. <laughs> he, he actually said, yeah, that's my favorite. I will never forget that. 
That is so my favorite when you can take these sort of biblical principles and then like put them into these real life scenarios and they clearly yeah. don't add up. And yet the yeah. smoke is still there. You know, the smoke is still exactly. like, yep, that's it. You got it. Yeah. So common sense tells us it's probably not true. Mm. I mean, in your Bible, in your Bible, sorry, in your bio. <laughs> <laughs> Freudian slip. That, that's my yeah. new Bible. Is my bio. <laughs> in in your bio, you mentioned that you you counsel couples. Have you encountered many couples who weren't necessarily compatible with each other, but they were together because just for by virtue of being in the same religion and having a shared faith? Yeah, I don't. It it does. You know, that's tricky for me as a couples therapist, because when I'm hired as a couples therapist, what are you hiring me to do? You're hiring mm. me as that cheerleader of that relationship. You know? <laughs> well, you know, but no, like there are times where couples therapy is contraindicated. You know, if there's if there's clearly someone that is not committed, not wanting to put in the work, you know, is potentially stepping out of the being deceitful or being harmful, or of course, with abuse, uh, psychological, physical abuse, like these are couples therapists don't see these couples, you know, mm. they, you know, you need individual therapy, which what's individual therapy going to have them do? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, but to answer your question, I think more so what I have seen in counseling couples who are deconstructing or coming out of dogmatic religion is oftentimes the dissonance and the disconnect is that we're deconstructing on different fields. So I think that this question would be better asked to somebody who's actually in the religious framework counseling these couples, but because I am vocally a religious trauma client, people who are kind of deconstructing or leaving the fold, if you will, are coming to me. And so at that point, what we find is that deconstruction of these ideas is a very individual process so we might have somebody in the dyad who's like i want to pursue non-monogamy consensual ethical non-monogamy or i don't think that porn aka sexually stimulating material is bad anymore or masturbation and i would like for us to update our relationship agreement to consider some of these things and so some person is kind of up here and some person is down here mm. right there. And so that creates a lot of concern. Uh, that's more what I see. Um, but sure, like not everybody's compatible. And, and a lot of a lot of times in couples therapy, it, it's just the process to find out this is where we're hung up and this is where we're not going to be able to continue to go. And so couples therapy can kind of highlight we tried and we found that this isn't a safe, emotionally safe, a physically safe, a psychologically safe place for me to be or a place that's going to help me actualize my values and goals. And those couples, you know, kind of on their own, figure that out and split up. But I just want to comment because it's my passion. I know it's not quite on the question, but sort of this when, when couples are deconstructing at different paces, mm -hmm. sometimes this is personality. So some people experience religion as a weighted blanket. Oh, this is warm and comfy. Just tell me how to live. Just tell me what's right and wrong and I'll do it. That feels nice and cozy. And some people experience those same messages as a straight jacket. They're like, ah, I can't, mm. get, out. I can't get out. And so yeah. Yeah. can feel like 
flying for the first time when you realize that you've had wings the entire mm. time. And so this person's like, I want to do all these fun things that we weren't allowed to do. And this person's like, wait, this is my weighted blanket, you know, yeah, like, yeah. away from me. So we see that too. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of, yeah, that, yeah, that, that makes total sense. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, is a, <laughs> I guess it's not really funny, but it is, it is slightly humorous, this comment from M. Burbage. Uh, there was a couple in my congregation in their late 70s who got in Aww. trouble for kissing and holding hands because they weren't married. <laughs> so it's, this, this touches on the aspect of that purity culture that's yeah. in, in most, um, you know, of the Judeo-Christian Abrahamic religions. So sad. Yeah, yeah. In hunger, we need to be touched. You know, we all have it. Exactly. I mean, what? Why? Why do you think it is that that so many religions focus so much on somebody's sexual expression and what is right and what is wrong sexually? Why do you think that is? So you're talking to a woman who grew up in. <laughs> I, I see patriarchy written all over it. Um, it's to control female bodies a lot of times, uh, vulva owners, if you will. Um, I think it's also, at least with purity culture, so purity culture happened in the 80s and 90s as sort of an overreaction to the AIDS epidemic and the free love movement. And so people were like, sex is great. Let's have more of it. Let's love everyone. And then the conservative church was like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and just kind of like overreacted, if you will, to confining um, people's sexuality and saying, all of this is bad. You need to shut it all down until your marriage night and then your marriage night have fun. But that doesn't work because when no. you tell people, no, 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 you cannot kiss, you cannot hold hands, you cannot masturbate, you cannot even think about somebody unclothed or about doing any of those things. And then, you, you know, the fear-based practice keep that shut down. And then all of a sudden on our wedding night, we're, we're supposed to be these like tigers in bed. And we've never touched ourselves. We've never been allowed to explore orgasms or eroticisms. And we are feeling even more shame. What's mm. wrong with me that I can't fulfill my marital duty um, so I don't really know other than that, other than to just, um, it, it, it really is perceived anything outside of that nuclear family monogamous, um, heteronormative mold has been deemed unsafe, um, sinful, um, evil, forbidden fruit. And so th that purity mindset was perpetuated. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, Jean makes this comment that um, uh, that's terrible, so controlling, especially with married couples too. I mean, Jehovah's Witnesses, not so much in recent years, but definitely in, in past decades, they have literally intruded into the bedrooms of every, you know, um, married Jehovah's Witness. And there were very strict rules about what you could do and what you couldn't do and what was clean and what was unclean. Yeah. Um, is that something that you, you've seen in other um, high control groups? Yeah, I mean, maybe not quite that invasive, but what we do find is in, in some real conservative purity culture movements, we see 
uh, women, new wives being forced to sign a contract that they will not withhold sex from their husbands. Wow. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's, you know, that's rape. <laughs> that's not consent. Um, and mm. that, you know, when we, that's not accessing our erotic being because our erotic being for different people comes out in different ways. And, you know, especially for a demisexual, you have to be safe, emotionally connected, and you need to feel soothed by the other person. And then your erotic being can come out. But if you're in this complementarianism dynamic, being told what to do, parent, you know, it's almost like a parent child relationship. Those parent, when we live out a parent child relationship in a dyad, it kills the sex because mm. it feels incestuous. When you have somebody calling the shots and somebody subservient, that takes us out of what I like to call being erotic equals. When you're an erotic equal in your relationship, that's when your erotic being can come out. But when we have these sort of, you know, you will do this and this is fulfilling your marriage duty, that that's where we yeah. see like, women's I've, I've never thought about that before. That that's really interesting. That that dynamic, it just doesn't feel it doesn't sound right. No, it doesn't. And we see it so in couples therapy, we see it a lot when somebody gets a chronic illness mm. and somebody just kind of has to be kind of more that caretaker. We see it kill the sex all the time. But that also happens with with um, unhealthy power differentials in diets too, where it feels like a parent child relationship and it kills the sex. Wow. That's a really interesting thing to think about. And actually that need le leads quite um, nicely onto Jean's comment, mm. uh, sexual repression. Um, do you, have you ever seen seen sexual repression lead into like child abuse? I, I mean, I, I have no idea whether or not that there's a correlation between those two things, yes. but have you, have you seen huge, that? There's a huge correlation because in abstinent only education, we don't talk about consent. We don't talk about what is it and consent is an enthusiastic yes, right? Mm. We don't talk about autonomy. We don't talk about anatomy. We don't talk about safe practices. We don't talk about what it means to choose sexual activity to, to be a, a, a part of that. We just say it's not allowed. Um, don't touch it, just shove it away. And also in that sort of power differential that we see in religious trauma and religious abuse, it um, supports compliance. Mm. So whether it be compliance because you're a female or compliance because you're a child, you do what you're told. And because people's sexualities are policed and what I was saying, either it either splits off and dies or it splits off and inflames. Well, what about these people in power where it splits off in flames and we have vulnerable children or we have vulnerable women who are told their bodies aren't their own, mm. um, you must decrease so he must increase. If you're not happy, it's because you're not choosing joy or Jehovah. So then something non-consensual happens to them. They don't have the words that it's non-consent because they've been taught abstinence only. And then they, you know, they are preyed upon in these dynamics and it so sexual assault and abuse goes widely widely unreported in these groups and i see these people come into my office and they say i finally got the courage to say hey this happened to me and guess what leadership does no that didn't happen there's no way your story mm. 
lineup or that person, you know, because with trauma, a lot of times our linear thinking doesn't add up or our timeline doesn't always add up because you're in survival mode. You're blocking things out. You're just getting through the moments. Well, then their stories are picked apart and like, no, that didn't happen because this, this and that. And then these people in power are protected or they're shuffled around to different congregations and the the sexual assault continues. Yeah. Wow. That's so, that's so sad. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, just want to quickly say thank you very much to Freddie Ray for your super sticker. Thank you, much appreciated. And thank you very much for Gene as well. Gene, super sticker. Thank you very much, Gene. Really appreciate that. Okay, so uh, we have a couple more comments. Um, so this interesting one from James Spitfire. If you do not know your own body, how can you have good sex marriage union? Uh, JWs are not the smartest thinkers. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's that's very very true. And what I've what I've noticed as well is that there's a high amount of I don't know if this is even a term, but sexual illiteracy mm. among among witnesses. I mean, um, when I was leaving the the group, one of the last uh, meetings that I had with the elders, um, I, you know, I just um, left. Um, my marriage has just broken down and. Um, I've just been disfellowshipped and I was speaking with them. They were trying to encourage me to come back. And I was saying that, you know, I'm not ready to come back at, at the moment. I hadn't ruled it out for the future, but I said, all I want to do is just meet somebody who makes me happy and who I can make happy mm -hmm. and just settle down and just live a good life. Yeah. And then they started trying to scare me with sexually transmitted diseases Mm -hmm. You know, and I just found that completely bizarre because people who are not Jehovah's Witnesses meet each other and get married and settle down all the time. And they're not all dying of whatever disease, you know. But, um, yeah, I mean, have you found that there's a lot of sexual um, like illiteracy in, in these cults and groups? Yeah, yeah there, there really is. Because we don't, again, it's that abstinence-only education. We don't talk about safe sex practices. Mm. And um, it, so we just, we don't have the, we're not teaching the vocabulary. And unfortunately, here in, in the States, that Christian perspective has influenced certain um, legal acts in terms of how education sex ed education is happening and even in the schools here um, to that extreme to where most states emphasize abstinent only education still and that's a moral assumption on sex education that's not a that's not a sexual health practice to yeah really what's helpful is to tell people in the netherlands they start at ages four and five years old teaching them about body parts and and different things and guess what their their teen pregnancy rate is like the lowest a lot of their teens wait longer before they have sex and we have less STDs. Yeah. <laughs> so when we don't talk about it, we have more problems in sexual health. When we do talk about it, we have less problems. So mm -hmm. the opposite is what happens, um, unfortunately. And there's a lot of illiteracy, sexual illiteracy in these groups. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much, uh, John Robinson, for your super sticker. Much appreciated. Yeah. Okay, let's see if there are any more questions.
Okay, this is an interesting comment from Patrick. Uh, so many JW marriages are only built upon the organization and how spiritually compatible couples are, like same goals, etc. Then when one or both wakes up, it often falls apart. That's something that I've seen as well, because this whole idea that um, a good marriage mate is somebody who's doing a lot for the organization. I mean, there's the, the issue of, you know, compatibility just doesn't come into it at all you'll find that a lot of marriages have a very very weak basis yeah so oftentimes when one person leaves the organization um the marriage breaks up yeah you know yeah you, know? That you kind of lose, lost that common goal yeah so in the Gottman couples method is based off of 40 years of relationship research. They find that there are key components that make love last. So the friendship and intimacy, it's like the found you have trust and commitment is huge, right? And then mm -hmm. friendship and intimacy, good conflict management skills. And at the top, the very like most, you know, um, forward thinking trajectory is shared meaning and goals and supporting life dreams come true. So, you know, they get part of it, right? Like, are you compatible in terms of where you think you're going in the religion? That's a piece of it, but it's certainly not all of it. And then when that goes away, you know, what's left? Exactly. Exactly. That's, that's totally right. I mean, in the, in the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Bible and Bible principles is the be all and end all of everything. You know, it's, it's, it's like it's the only thing you need. And that's one of the reasons why they're so against um, any kind of counseling or therapy or any kind of like mental health professional advice, because all you need to do is read the Bible and pray. And um, it just doesn't it just doesn't work. Yeah, yeah. it just it just doesn't work. You know, no, I mean, I, I, I've seen that in my own experience as well. You know, when I was having various issues, yeah. um, one thing that I found as well is that elders often I use the term misdiagnose because for want of a better one, <laughs> but they misdiagnose depression as guilt. Oh. So when when someone is depressed, they automatically assume it's because they have a sin that they haven't confessed. Mm. Wow. And that, that that's a huge that's a huge thing. So much shame. Yeah. That yeah. induces shame in the body and you kind of freeze up in that. Yeah, that's, that's right. And to do something about it when you have shame. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, it, it just, it just, sometimes when I sit and think back on all of this, I just think to myself, how did I ever believe all of this? Mm -hmm. You know, how did I ever believe that, that the Bible was all you need, the one thing that you needed to have a happy and fulfilled life? Mm -hmm. You know, it just seems ridiculous now. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I'm not against the Bible. There are definitely some good principles in it, principles that I still follow now and will continue to follow for the rest of my life. But it, you know life is so complex especially now that we're like two thousand years away from when the bible was was written i mean to think that the bible has the answers for every single thing you know it's just extremely unrealistic yeah and yet so many of us were there for so long right and and the book leaving the fold does a really nice job at explaining kind of what keeps us there and a lot of it has to do with religion is sort of that one-stop shop you know yeah. we have traditions for birth 
We have traditions for moving through into adulthood. We have traditions for marriage and for dying. And we have community. We have annual traditions. We have celebrations. We have everything. It's like everything you need is right there. You don't need to go anywhere. Mm -hmm. This sort of false sense of love and belonging and sometimes a true sense of love and belonging. But that kind of keeps us there. And it's like then it, it's a prime area for cognitive dissonance. So even if information comes to you where you're thinking, um, well, this doesn't, this contradicts what I understand about the Bible. Well, cognitive dissonance kind of weighs out the pros and the cons. Do I let this contradictory information that might act as critical thinking, do I let this in or do I value what this is giving me? And a lot of times it's that community, that false sense and sometimes true sense of community that keeps us there. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, yeah, it, it reminds me of that um, that movie, that uh, The Village by M. Night Shyamalan. Have you? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, they, oh, have, they, they build up this myth <laughs> to, to keep people in because they don't want anyone straying beyond the confines of the, of, of the village. You know, I'm going to watch that movie again yeah. in mindset. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's exactly how I felt when I realized that my whole entire life I had been lied to. That's exactly how I felt. I felt like, mm -hmm. you know, I'd been told this lie because I was in this small, tiny village, mm -hmm. you know, that was isolated from the big wide world. And they just told me this lie to keep me in. Mm -hmm. And you know? fear, you know, the monsters. Yeah. <laughs> Is what kept you there not love exactly no fear. yeah yeah mm -hmm. absolutely and and it's living in fear is no way to live at all yeah. it's no absolutely. way to live at all mm -hmm. you know and and it's sad that it, it does actually work because a lot of people go back to the religion because of that yeah you know a lot of people go back telling them they're not safe so oh they must be right exactly mm -hmm. exactly and there's no doubt in my mind that it's all intentional it's definitely your attention. So besides um, seeking therapy, what are some of the things that a, a person in this position can do on a day-to-day -day basis to try and uh, overcome a lot of these challenges? Mm -hmm. Yeah, kind of just to recap some of the little things that I've said throughout is um, that self-care. Mm. It's not a luxury. It's, it's a requirement. You know, what activities make you feel safely embodied? I love the book Self-Compassion. I love activities like yoga and mindfulness. And then, of course, that community support from, from recovering from religion is a great place to go. Like your platform, great place to go to hear other people's stories and knowing that you're not alone. So anything you can do to become safely embodied in yourself through self-care, mind-body connection, yoga, mindfulness, um, and then that com the new community piece of people that understand what you've been through, can relate to it, can validate your experience. So you're not continuing to gaslight yourself. Was it really that bad? Is there something wrong with me? No, it actually was really bad. And there's nothing wrong with you. And your reaction, guess, guess what? I have nightmares too. And guess what? I feel terrified when I go inside a church too. You know, like those are those are things that other people experience. There's not something wrong with you. Your body is trying to keep you safe and, mm -hmm. and it's trying to integrate that trauma. So yeah, any of those uh, mind body connections community, and then of course the therapy that we talked about. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. 
So um, I think that's it. That's all we have time for today. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the channel. Thank you. And thank you, viewers, for all of your questions. And um, please, all of the links to um, connect with um, Christy are in the description below. Great. So please check those out. And um, will they be able to contact you by email or um, through any of those websites? Yeah, you can contact me through through my website. And then, of course, through um, all those other resources are through seculartherapyproject.org and Recovering from Religion. But yeah, through my website, there's a contact sheet in there that you can contact me through. Great, excellent. Well, thanks again for joining. Absolutely, thanks Thank you so much. Me. You're welcome. And thank you, viewers. Um, please, if you haven't already done so, please like and subscribe to the channel for more um, videos in the future. I will be doing another uh, special event um, due to Mental Health Week, which will be on Wednesday night, but you'll get more details about that. Please, when you do subscribe, subscribe with notifications because YouTube is very funny about what videos it notifies you of. So if you subscribe with notifications, then you won't miss any of my updates. So thank you so much for watching and I'll see you in the next one. Thank you so much for watching to the very end of the video. If you haven't already done so, please like, leave a comment and subscribe to the channel. If you like my work and want to help me continue doing it, please support me on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash jexit underscore 2020.